0: Hey, I'm Austin and welcome to the Valley Point Podcast. This week continues our new teaching series, Outlaw. Join Valley Point Church as we look to biblical imagery that presents Jesus as a radical who challenged the religious machinery of his day. Through his life, ours can be changed. This, is outlaw. Do you ever feel like a desperado? Like you're all on your own? Maybe like nobody really understands you that much, like nobody gets what you believe or why you believe it and you're forced to roam from city to city all by yourself with no one next to you. I felt like that a lot. Sometimes it's a couple of days, sometimes it's a couple of months, sometimes it's a year or so. I feel very alone, very isolated. And that line in the song has said, You have to let somebody love you. It feels really hard to let somebody love you in those moments because you don't feel lovable. Well, uh, Jesus talks about that uh, to his disciples. He's got his disciples all around uh, in John chapter 15. They're all sitting around him, and he's talking to him. and he's teaching them all kinds of stuff. And he says this. He says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. If you believed everything everybody else believes, at work, at school, if you, if you were part of them, and you belong to them, they would accept you, and they would love you, and you fit right in. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. And that is why the world hates you. Later in chapter 15, he makes this statement. They hate you now because first they hated me. And as he's telling his disciples this, as he's telling them that this is the reason the world hates you, there are men currently on the other side of town plotting to kill him at that moment. Not much more hatred you can get than plotting somebody's death, right? Valley Point, we're all about real relationships. Real relationships with each other, real relationships with God. And so what happened is that God sent his son down, Jesus, to have the ultimate showdown between Satan and, and Jesus, between good and evil, and good won. And we defeated Satan. And because of that, he's created a new community for us, that we can have real relationships with God and real relationships with with each other. He's created that posse, that new crowd, that new group, because the group didn't exist before. Because everybody kind of believed the same thing. Everybody used to fit in. And then Jesus changed everything, and it got, it got a little bit weird. And so today's all about relationships. Today's big idea is that my relationship, my friendship with Jesus, allows me to rewire my relationships with others, all my other relationships. And so we're going to look at John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 today, and we're going to look at why. We're going to look at Jesus' example of relationships and how we should have relationships with others and how we should have relationships with each other and how, more specifically, how Jesus had relationships with people. And using that information is going to help us define and guide how we have relationships with other people. Because every time we talk to somebody, every time we treat somebody good or poor, whatever it is, it needs to go through the filter of Jesus. And we're going to learn a little bit today about how that works. So uh, if you have Bibles, open them up to, uh, to John 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. And we're going to kind of read slowly through this and talk about some stuff and uh, read through the plan. we want to talk about the plan. And then we get takeaways. They're my favorite part. Okay. <clears throat> chapter uh, 15, verse 12. Does that got a long wire coming down here? What's that about? All right. Um, I'm sure you guys didn't notice that. <laughs> no. Um, okay. <laughs> my wife is laughing very loud. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's <laughs> great, you can hear. Um, it's very inspiring. Uh, verse 12 says, This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. Now, he's talking to his disciples, right? And these men are versed in the Old Testament. Jesus himself is a rabbi. He is a teacher of the word, and he's very versed in the Old Testament. And so when they hear him say, This is my commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. That's very familiar language in one way and very unfamiliar language in a different way. Here's what I mean. In the Old Testament... Over and over and over again, the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. And a lot of Christians think that that is a very New Testament concept, and it's not. It's all over the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. It's one of the 600-plus laws that they have in the Jewish faith, in in the Torah, in the, the first five books of the Bible. There's all these rules. And one of those is love your neighbor as yourself. And so they knew this law. This is very familiar to them. And Jesus says, He says the same thing, but in a slightly different way. And that slight difference makes all the difference in the world. And here's what that is. The first law is to love your neighbor as yourself. So based on that assumption, the love you have for yourself is the limit of what you can love other people. And that's all you get. So if you don't love yourself very much, you can't love other people very much. And so Jesus takes it a step further. He says, I not only want you to love people the way that you love yourself, but I want you to love people the way that I am going to love you, the way that I am currently loving you. And that is an entirely different level and understanding of love than we have had over hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a totally different thing. Another interesting part about that is it says, this is my commandments. Old Testament in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, starting with Genesis. There are over 600 laws, and these guys know all of them. 600 commandments. And Jesus says... And it says this a couple of different times. And it's the same thing every time. It says, this is my commandment, singular, colon. This is my commandment. Love others the way that I have loved you. And the next statement shows how he's going to do that, which is the impossible. And it's what makes Jesus, Jesus. He says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And at this point in the book of John, he's already figured out he already knows that someone is going to betray him, I and mean, he already knows that he's going to be crucified. And he's already told somebody. He's like, guys, I'm not going to be here forever. They're going to kill me. Sure, he was a lot more mysterious than that, because Jesus was a pretty mysterious guy. If you've read anything about it, there can be some mystery there. But you know, he already knows, and he's telling them that with the full knowledge that he is going to die, and he's not going to be around anymore. He's like, that is, that is love. That is perfect love. What I want you to do in order for you to rewire your relationships with others, I want this to dictate your actions. Real love is laying down your life for somebody else. The next verse says, You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in in slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. And we're going we're gonna to take a deeper look at that a little bit later because that's a really, really cool verse, and I want to talk about it more. But let's move on first. <clears throat> the next verse, uh, verse 16, says, You didn't choose me, I chose you. And a lot of people overlook that verse because it's so small, and there's not a lot in there. You chose me, or you didn't choose me, I chose you. But that statement is more countercultural, is more against the norm of what happened in everyday life there than just about anything Jesus ever did. And I know that's a pretty big claim, for some young kid to get up on stage and say something like that. But here's why. When you grow up and you're an, a Hebrew boy, right, as I am clearly a not, um, <laughs> young Hebrew boy, you have uh, two options. You can be a rabbi, go on the spiritual journey, or you can do whatever your parents do, which I know students, <laughs> you really don't want that to be true. Um, I sure didn't. So you can, you can farm the land, you can be a farmer, you could be a blacksmith, you could, uh, you could do whatever your parents did. You could be a, sh- a sheepsman, a shepherd, whatever. You could do whatever. You could learn the family trade. <laughs> sheepsmen. don't laugh at me. <laughs> That's a word, people. I just decided today. Uh, so you could do whatever your parents wanted to. But more, more often than not, the first tier of education, every young boy did. And what that is, is you learn, you, you memorize the Bible. And you didn't have Bibles like we do now. You didn't have a book. You didn't have a pocket size. You didn't have an app on your phone, you version. You can get it in a million different languages. Typically, within walking distance, you had one Bible, which was uh, at the temple or the synagogue, and it was guarded by the rabbi, and he would read you the Bible, and that is how you had access to Scripture. And the only way to have daily, regular access to Scripture is to memorize it, so that whenever you wanted to know it, you could just have it in your head. And that's how they did it. So young boys, uh, like elementary school age, would start to memorize the Torah, Uh, the first five books of the Bible starting with Genesis. And that is a lot of memorization, and a lot of it is numbers, a lot of it is laws and figuring out what to do and what not to do and how to sacrifice and the grain of atonement. And there's a lot of stuff in there. And that's what you, you do as a Hebrew boy. Now, when you're done, you have two options. You can go and learn the trade and start the family business and do all that, or you can continue on with your education. So, a lot of guys, and this wasn't a bad thing that you dropped out, it was not, it's not really dropping out, that's the wrong term, uh, but basically they, just, they decided a different life path and they decided to go towards the path of working for their parents instead of going the path of the spiritual journey to become a rabbi. So you could choose either or. If you chose to continue education, your second year of education um, was to memorize the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Psalm, Proverb, Job, Isaiah, the whole shebang, poetry, history, everything. From the beginning to the end of the Hebrew Bible, by the time boys graduated that, they were like 13, 14 years old, they had the entire Hebrew Bible memorized, and you wouldn't think there's a lot more education that you can get than that, basically having everything memorized. You know spiritual concepts. You know everything every guy did. You know every Bible story. You can quote it off the top of your head. And so when you finished, you had two options. You can go farm the land, be a blacksmith, be a sheepsman, or you can, sheepsman is a totally a word, shepherd. You can, you can do whatever your parents did, or you could continue on your spiritual education. But the problem with continuing your spiritual education is you have all the textbooks memorized. How can you go any further? Here's how. A one-on-one relationship with a rabbi. So if you were to continue, which a very, very, very small percentage of, of young boys decided to take this route, but they wanted to be a rabbi, they would go to a rabbi and they'd say, hey, rabbi, what's up, bro? Uh, I would like to follow you. And what they meant when they said that is I want, to, I want to do what you do. I want to know everything you know, what you teach people and why you teach people that. I want to know all of it. I want to be you. And so as a rabbi, that's not an easy request to say yes to, is it? Like, wow, that's a little time-consuming. I don't know if I have four years. So they would grill him. They would spend a couple of days, and they would ask him questions. They're like, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know that? Do you know this? And at the end of that conversation, one or two things could happen. They could say, sorry, kid, you're just not good enough. You just, you just don't have what it takes to be me. I'm sorry. And that was totally a viable option. And it wasn't, again, not necessarily a negative thing, but that was just the end of the road for their spiritual path. And if they wanted to, they would have to go to a different rabbi and start the whole process over again. The second option, the rabbi could say, yes. And this is the word that the rabbis would use to initiate that positive response. They would say, yes, follow me. By saying, follow me, the rabbi would say, you're, you're, you're what I'm looking for. You looked for me, you came to me, and I, and I, I said, yes. I'm going to take you under my wing. I'm going to teach you everything that I know. I'm going to teach you everything I know and why I know it. And I'm going to teach you to do what I do so that one day you can have your own temple and your own synagogue and you can be a rabbi just like me. Jesus didn't do it that way because he's Jesus and he's got to do things differently. So Jesus walked around the country, not like down the road, the country finding guys and he would walk up to a fisherman or a taxman or a historian or whatever their position was. And he would say, to them, come follow me. No application, no grilling. And a lot of times, really every time, every single one of these 12 disciples, at some point in their life, were on the spiritual path. At some point in their life, they were memorizing the Torah. They were memorizing the rest of scripture. And they were on a path to become a rabbi. And at some point in that one, two, three tiered education system, they dropped off. Because every time you finish, you get one or two options. At some point, every single one of these 12 guys took option B. And they went and they learned the family trade. They went and learned how to fish. They went and learned to do the tax thing. They went and learned to be a shepherd. They went and learned to do whatever it is they did. And so they knew how it all worked. They knew that they had to talk to a rabbi in order to become a disciple. But it didn't work that way this time. Jesus came to them and they said, You, I think you're good enough to do what I do. I think you are good enough to be me. I think you're good enough to one day start this church. And what these guys didn't know is who Jesus really was. And that he wasn't asking them to start their own temple or start their own synagogue. He was asking them to start the beginning of the, the history of the Christian church from the ground up. These 12 guys said, I, I choose you. You didn't choose me. You chose fishing. You chose taxing. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And those two sentences are incredibly impactful and are often overlooked. And I wanted to make sure that we talked about that today so that we could understand exactly how countercultural Jesus actually was in his time. He goes on uh, in verse 16. That's verse 16. The rest of verse 16 it says, I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command love each other. Now, Jesus grew up in a culture very, very similar to ours because there are different classes and types of people, whether we want there to be or not, they exist, and there's a very clear line in the saying. There were masters, and there were slaves. You were one or the other. There was no in between. You were rich or you were poor. You were clean, you were unclean. You were sick, you were healthy. You were holy, you were unholy. You were part of the right family or you were part of the wrong family. And it was a very clear distinction back then, even more so, because everything was very, very, very spiritual. A lot of times it's not how holy or unholy you are now. A lot of times right now it's, well, what's your last name? Hmm. Because that depends a lot on what I think of you. Oh, well, how much do you make? What floor do you work on? Are you, are you first string varsity, or are you second string varsity? <laughs> right? There's a big difference. There's a very clear line in the sand that society defines your socioeconomic status. And Jesus spent a lot of time, a lot, a lot, a lot of time purposefully spending time with the wrong sorts of people. Let me give you an example or four. Mark 2. Jesus has dinner with a tax guy. And um, tax people back then would rip you off. That was kind of their deal. They would charge you your taxes, and they would have a little fee on the side, and they would put that in their pocket. And so everybody hated them. They were dirty sinners. Dirty, dirty sinners. Say that with me. Dirty, dirty sinners. Okay, thank you. Why did I do that? That's terrible. Um, But you get my idea. So not only did he have dinner with these dirty, dirty sinners, but he also had dinner with a bunch of other dirty sinners. And the Bible specifically uses the phrase, and other disreputable sinners is what what Scripture uses. Disreputable. Jesus spent his time with disreputable people on purpose because he wanted to. Yes, I talk slowly for a reason. Uh, John 4 He says, uh, he talks to this woman at the well. You may have heard the story. He talks to this woman. Okay, so a lot of what I just said is very, 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 very countercultural. Jesus talked to a woman in public. This was not okay for an adult grown man to do, but he did it anyway because she needed Jesus. Not only was he an adult grown man talking to a woman in public, it's like four rules right there, but she had five husbands in the past. And she was currently living with another guy that she was not yet married to. I guess she was working on that. Girl had a reputation, if you know what I'm talking about. So not only did he talk to a woman in public as a full grown man, but with this kind of woman, imagine what people would talk about. Oh, can you believe he did that? It's got to be like Real Housewives of Atlanta up in there. People are making phone calls. Do you believe that? Oh my gosh, Jesus did not talk to that woman. It was not okay. It was not okay for him to be doing what he was doing, but he did it anyway. That's the point. Luke 19, a tax collector. Um, I just, my note just says tax collector. Um, okay, so Jesus walks into town, right? And there's all these people, because Jesus walking into town, they want to talk to Jesus, they want him to heal him, they want him to talk to him, all that kind of stuff. They crowd around him. All kinds of people. There's got to be, like, like I'm, I'm assuming the mayor's there. mayor's got to be there. If Jesus comes in your town, mayor's got to greet you, right? All these important people, all these unimportant people, everybody from the town comes to greet Jesus he comes into the town. Well, there's a tax guy, as we know, is a dirty, dirty sinner, right? And so he climbs a tree, because all he wants to do is get a look at Jesus. I, I just want, if I could just get a look at him, maybe, I, I don't know what, what to expect, but maybe if I could just get a look at him. So he climbs a tree. All these people around. Jesus looks around all these people he could talk to, all these people he could be spending his time with. His options were numerous. And he looks up into the tree, and he says, hey, dirty sinner. His name was Zacchaeus, not dirty sinner. He says, I want to hang out with you. we are going to your house, make me some food. We're hanging out. I have all the, I can, I can do anything I want with my time, but I choose to hang out with the dirty, dirty sinner. In Mark 2, um, there's, he goes, to, he goes to a city, just like he does all the time. He goes to the city, and he goes into this house, and this house then becomes crazy packed. You can't get into this house. There's, like, a window, maybe two windows, a door. People are in line People are peeking through the windows, and there's this guy who his whole life has been paraplegic, laying on a mat, right? And you are paraplegic, and laying on a mat. You need some friends because you can't go places because your legs don't work, right? That's how it works. So he had these friends, and who would carry him around. He's like, guys, got to see Jesus because he can fix this. Guys are like, well... I don't know if you know, but there's a lot of people there. He's like, we'll figure something out. So him and his friends carry him to the roof of the house. And they dig through the roof. Dig, there wasn't like a window. There was no chimney. They dug a hole in the roof, a man-sized hole. And they lowered him down in just so Jesus could touch him and heal him. You're not digging a, roof, a hole in my roof. You come to my house? You climb the the ladder, and you go on the roof, and you dig a hole. I'm mad at you. That's a bad thing. I discourage all of you from digging a roof in my hole, a hole in my roof. (laughs) Well, I came out all kinds of weird. You know what I'm saying. It was very, very weird. And so even one of the disciples, even one of the guys who wanted to be just like Jesus said, hey, listen, you can't be digging holes in people's roofs. And Jesus said, hey, shut your mouth for a second, because this guy wanted so, so desperately to just see me, to talk to me, to shake my hand, that he was willing to do whatever it takes to get to me. You should be more like that. Get behind me, Satan, is the term he uses to talk to one of his disciples in that story. Jesus, over and over and over and over again, talks about how we need to rewire, redefine, re-guide how we have relationships with other people. Story after story about he was countercultural, about those lines in the sand did not matter to him. They stopped mattering. And he kept telling people, they don't matter. They don't matter. It has to stop. And they killed him for it. So, the plan. Let's talk about the first thing a new approach. Jesus gives us a new approach at having relationships. Uh, For example, we do a thing called Love Day every month. And it's the time where our whole church gets together and we serve our community. And all month, organizations call us and they say, hey, can you do this? Hey, can you do this? Hey, we need this. And not only do they do that, but we, we go to them and we say, hey, what, what do you need? Just tell us what you need and we'll, we'll figure out a way. We'll find a way. I, I got a guy who's got a guy. We can make it happen. It doesn't matter. We'll do it for you. Every month this happens. And next month is a collection day. So what's going to happen is an organization is going to call us and say, hey, we need a bunch of shoes. And we've done this before. And we say, Eric gets up here in front of all you guys. And he's like, hey, guys. I know you got a bunch of shoes. Bring your shoes in. We all bring a bunch of shoes and we give those shoes away for free to an organization that needs shoes. Well, this month was a working day. And so we had six different locations where you could show up to the Bethel Road campus yesterday at 8.30. And a bunch of us were there. There was these tables and you could figure out where you wanted to go and serve. And I went to the Delaware County Pregnancy Center. And this place is a place that um, underprivileged or unknowledgeable moms, women, can go and learn about their pregnancy options. And yes, I use the word options on purpose because a lot of times, especially with young women, they get pregnant and they think, ah, I don't know what to do. What do I do? How do I do this? I have no money. I only have one option or I only have two options. And the pregnancy center there is designed to say, no, 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 no. Before you make a decision, and it's a faith based organization, before you make a decision, we want you to understand all the options because adoption is a valid option. You have three options, you have four options. It's not, it's not as black and white as you think it might be. This is, this is what happens to your body. This is what happens here. And they offer them classes and counseling and how to, you know, I can't imagine, like, these women are free. I don't know how to change a diaper, and the dads will come too. I don't know how to change a diaper. What am I going to do? Well, let's teach you how to change a diaper. Let's do this together. Let's learn the different skills it takes to be a dad. Let's learn the different skills it takes to be a mom. Because without a place like this, those women who show up would really only feel like they had one option, right? And so this place is incredible, and they do so much good. And they said, we, we need, our, our front lawn looks awful. We need the grass cut. We need to pull these bushes out. We need to trim these, yada, yada. And guess what? They let me use one of those electronic, like, like what are they called, the trimmers? A man, helped me out here. What is it called? It was a hedge, hedge, there we go. I got some guys helping me out here. It was awesome. You can cut down the whole bush in one swoop. It's great. But we had the opportunity as a church to serve that community in that way because they do so much for our community and it's just a chance for us to give back to them as they show people who Jesus really is. Jesus gives us a new approach to cut down the walls, to cut down the lines in the sand and do whatever it takes for people, for whoever. The second thing is a new community. Um, The scripture in that verse says, you are my friends and that's the one that we kind of skipped over a little bit. Uh, so I want to read that again to us and, and, and talk about it. It says, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in, in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. Now our definition, our worldview of a slave is very the last 200 years and it is an atrocity to mankind and should never ever be done that way. But 2,000 years ago, slavery was a very, very different thing. Slavery was an option. Slavery was a job. And here's what slavery was. As you were a slave to a master and a master, uh, they wrote the checks, and you would show up to work, and the master told you to do anything. Clean this, do this, go get this, do that, do this for me. And the slave would do that without question. At the end of the day, they'd get a check and go home. That is what it means to be a slave. Uh, in this context, when he's talking about him and the disciples, he's talking about a relationship between a master and a slave in a different way, but in a similar relationship to each other. And so, for the first part of their relationship, Jesus was the master, and the disciples were the slaves. They, they just, they, you know, his first day in the job. You don't have to know why we do what we do. You just got to get my coffee. <laughs> and here, I, you don't need to know why. You need to cut this check. You need to do that. You need to help those people. You need to feed these people. You need to teach those people. You don't have to know why yet. You just got to do what I say. And at this point, he says, I no longer call you slaves. You are no longer taskmasters in our organization, but we are friends. It's no longer a master-slave relationship, but we are friends. And again, these are very Old Testament, well-read, scholarly men who are hearing this. Abraham, the father of faith in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, he is often referred to as a friend of God and is known as a friend of God. Moses, known as a friend of God. In the book of Psalm, Jesus refers to the Israelite nation as friends of God. And so when Jesus uses this term friend, it's very clear and very specific. It doesn't take very much explanation. He says, you are friends it is no longer a master teaching his slaves. I have nothing left to teach you. I'm not holding out on you. I told you that I think you can do what I do. And I stand by that. And that's true now. I think you can do now what I can do. I have now successfully recreated myself 12 times in these men. And the big reason that he was doing that is because he knew that he wasn't going to be around. That he, His time was limited and he had to take care of business. He didn't have... 10 years and he couldn't do it on its own on his own, he, he needed the help and so he created he created versions of himself and these disciples and so when I think of my relationship with God, is it a slave master relationship? Maybe at first you know and I think some, some days more than others still is, but I feel like God says to us, you're, you're friends I've taught you, I've given you everything you need to know I'm not holding out on you there's nothing left to read. There's nothing left to listen. Oh, look at there. There's a Bible. I wonder what that's for. He's given us everything that we need to know. He's not holding out. There's nothing left. There's no, there's no more intelligence to learn about Jesus. He's given us everything that we need to know. The third thing is a new mission. The Bible says, I appoint you to go and produce fruit. Now, Jesus talked a lot in, uh, in allegories and similes and metaphors and, and all things like that. And he referred to something that we understand very well to a concept that we have a hard time understanding. And so he says, I appoint you, 12, and now us, millions. I appoint you to go and produce fruit. But he didn't say go into the field and get some fruit. I'm hungry. He said produce people. Fruit is a metaphor for people. I want you to love people. In the the first verse, verse 12, it says, My commandment, love people. Verse 17, My commandment, love people. I appoint you to go produce fruit. People, love people, serve people, give hope to people cut the grass for people, paint the walls for people, do whatever it takes for people, love on people, get into a life group with people, do whatever it is, because everything that we do here as the church is all 100% about people and nothing else. My life wasn't changed because of a building or because of a sermon or because of a screen or because of a song or because of a piano. My life was changed because of people. Here at Point, we talk about real relationships a lot, and we don't just talk about it, but we do it. Adults, we do these bi-monthly life groups, and a family will open their home uh, to a group of 10, 15, 20 people, and they'll have food and snacks, and um, they'll watch a, a, a video on their TV screen, a teaching, and then you will talk about that teaching, and then they'll kind of do life together. And it's hard over a year of laughs and food to not grow to love other people. If you're in a life group, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're not in a life group, and you're thinking, man, I wish I had that. Man, my work schedule is so busy, I don't, have, I don't have a Thursday night to just go and hang out and have dinner. I got, but you feel alone, and you don't have to, because life groups exist. If you're not in a life group, you can go out into the lobby, and there's this little spinny rack thingy, and it's got all these cards in it. Each one of those cards represents a life group. Whichever day of the week, whichever demographic fits for you, Married, not married, younger, older, whatever it is, there is a place for you in a life group. And I highly encourage you to get into one. Students, we have life groups tonight from 6.30 to 8. We do it twice a month, just like adults. We have a high school house and a middle school house. And we have adult leaders who lead and guide those conversations with students. Sometimes it's one or two leaders and ten, you know, five, ten students in a room. We have spiritual conversations. And it's hard after a year or two years, or three years of being together, talking about spiritual things, it's hard to not be close. It's hard to not love each other. It's a great way for us to live in community. Jesus spent every day, all day, for three years with 12 other guys. 13 guys hanging out. The original life group. We didn't invent it, I promise. We're not that clever. Okay, (laughs) It's all stolen material. And that's why we do it. We don't do it because it's a Cool program. It's not about the program. It's about people, and our our whole mission here, and the the reason I work here, the reason I moved across the country to be here, is because this is a place that puts people first. Right now, as we're talking about a new mission, as this the slides on the screen, and we're have our Bibles open. Right now, down the hall, Dan and a bunch of experienced adults have little third-graders and fourth-graders and fifth-graders and second-graders in life groups having spiritual conversations. Hey, did you know that the Bible says this to a seven-year-old? Well, it does. Does that change the way you think about things? Here's a game, and here's a snack. (laughs) Gotta have a snack. Everything we do is about life groups. From the top to the bottom of our whole church, that is what we're about. We do this on Sunday mornings. And that's a great deal. But really, we want you guys to get plugged into people. Especially at the beginning uh, of the talk today, we talked about we can feel alone. We can feel like desperados. We can feel unlovable. But the thing is, is that you don't have to anymore. That's only one option. And you have that option. If you want to feel alone, you can. But you don't have to. Because we have a place for you to go to feel loved and help love on other people. Here's some takeaways. First takeaway, get a posse. There are no excuses there is no reason why you can't or won't or shouldn't be in a life group, in a posse. And your, your posse doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be 20 people. It doesn't have to be the whole church. Look around at the person sitting next to you. It could be the two of you. It could be the three of you. It could be the four of you. The reason I'm a Christ follower today is because of two people, Tiffany and Cameron. You can go ahead and throw that first picture up there. Call that skinny brat. <laughs> Spiky hair. Ugh. That was a bad look for me. <laughs> Those are my best friends in the world. We've been best friends since the sixth grade. And freshman year of high school, they decided that I needed to come to church. And they hadn't been going to church for long, but they're like, brat, dude, we're going to church, you're going to church. That's how it works. We're a posse. I was like, you no, know I'm, I'm, I'm actually good. I don't really care for the for the preacherness. I don't really care for the choir. I don't really care for... Um, feeling like the worst human alive on a regular basis. I'm not a fan of that, so it's not going to go. And they're like, well, uh, that's more of a courtesy call because we're on our way to pick you up now. Get ready. (laughs) Okay. All right, great. Thanks for the courtesy call. Um, In the next three or four months, I learned what real love felt like. I learned what Jesus actually did more than just a children's story. And I committed my life to Christ, not because of a building, not because of a talk, not because of a song, not because there were cute girls there, and there were but because two of my friends cared enough about me to invite me over and over and over again. Here's a picture nine years later. Yeah. That was my last night in Vegas. And I needed a party. (laughs) Like, I was going through some big life changes, and I thought, who do I invite to this? Who needs to be there? And when I got to this place, they were already there. I didn't even need to call them. They were already there for me because that's the kind of people that I put in my life. My best friends in the whole world. I could go a year or two without talking to them and pick up the phone like no time has passed at all. Something really cool. Tiffany, the girl in the middle, the girl, <clears throat> didn't need to explain that anymore. <laughs> like, just to make sure you know which one that is. T- Tiffany's getting married on Saturday, which I'm so excited about because I've grown up with her, and she's going to get married, and I get to go, and I get to fly to Vegas, and I get to hug her and tell her how proud I am of her. Wow, that came quick. Zero to 60. They are responsible for me being a Christ follower. The next picture is a picture of me and a guy named Frank and Jeff, and these two guys are largely responsible for me being a pastor in every way. Uh, Frank. He gave me my first opportunity at an internship. He's the one who made it feasible because I didn't even know it was possible to work for a church full-time. It wasn't even an option for me. And he opened the doors and he made it an option. Jeff has held me accountable for so much stuff and and told me I'm stupid so many times. And those are the two guys that sat in the room when I was writing my first talk ever. I was 17 years old. I was still in high school. I'm sitting down, I got my Bible out, got all, got all my notes spread out, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do this. And I did the whole thing all the way through to an empty room except you guys. And I sat there and they said, man, that was awful. It was so bad. You need to fix this. You pace too much. You talk too fast. You say, um, so much. Don't do that. And for the next four years, they did that to me. And every single time I dropped the ball, they were there to pick it up. And that is why I'm here today. Four people. That's my posse. I have a a few more that I could add to that list. All four of those people were in my wedding because they contributed to my success as a human being, as a man. If you're not in a life group, if you're not seeking this, then you're not using this the way it was designed to be used. The church exists. We exist so that this can exist, so that your life can be changed the way that mine was. I know it happened to me. Can happen to you. Second takeaway, invite someone to be a part of your posse. If you're a part of a posse and you have a good thing going, you have a community, don't hold on to that. Don't hoard that. Don't block people away from that and say, "I need to." we need to protect our posse from the evil outsiders. No, don't do that. You have a good thing, expose people to that. Let them understand because they may not have something like that they may have never experienced a room of people where they felt good about themselves in. And that is too real. You have the opportunity, if you, have, if you are in a life group, and I know a lot of you are, if you are in a life group, open, your homes are already open, open open the doors even further. Find somebody in the lobby who you don't even know. Be like, hey, are you in a life group? No, nope. to be in my life group. Well, I'm, I'm like 100 years old. That's okay. Be in my life group anyway. I don't care. I just want you to experience what I experience on a weekly basis. I want you to be a part of that because I'm so jacked on excitement about where I go every single week that I want you to be a part of that too. It's okay to do that. It's a little bit weird. It's a little bit counterculture, but let's do it anyway. Last takeaway. Courageously venture beyond your boundaries. Jesus had a line in the sand to deal with. Clean versus unclean, sick versus healthy, poor, rich, master, slave. And he had, he had a situation to walk into. What do I do? How do I deal with this? And he walked over that line back and forth so many times, and people watched him and hated him for it because he wasn't supposed to talk to that woman at the well. He was not supposed to let the guy who dug a hole in his roof off the hook. He was not supposed to hang out with the dirty, dirty sinners. He wasn't supposed to do it over and over and over again. Jesus made a point on purpose of hanging out with people who did not deserve it. And that's the mission. That's, that's the whole deal. I don't know how to talk about the church in a better way than that. At work or at school, there is someone, I guarantee you, that you're not supposed to talk to. Oh, well, you know I go to work, but that guy... I mean, he's like super weird, dude. I can't talk to him. He's, have you smelled him? Dude doesn't shower. That's not okay. How bold can you be? Jesus wouldn't even flinch at that. Well, he probably smelled too, but that's besides the point. The showers weren't exactly a thing, if you know what I'm saying. So what what I'm saying is that there is somebody at work. There is somebody at school. Walk across the lunchroom and sit with that kid who's sitting by himself. Even if you know why they're sitting by themselves, even if you think they're weird, even if they've been mean to you, it doesn't matter because not a single boundary, not a single socioeconomic rule or line guided how Jesus acts. He did not care. He did the opposite. I need to love people who are sick. I need to love people who need me. And that's our mission. We need to love people. Go and produce fruit. People. This is my commandment. Love people. This is my commandment. Love each other. People. It's all about people. How far are you willing to go beyond your comfort zone to show people that God loves them? And this whole thing isn't about making you feel guilty, like, oh, no, I should have, oh, you know, walking out of church like that. Don't, don't do that. It's, it's not about feeling bad. It's about thinking about how you rewire, thinking about how you understand your relationships. We want to get in there. Why do you do what you do? Why do you talk to people the way you talk to people? And we can't do that in a big room like this because it's too big. Life groups, you can do that. Absolutely. But here, we can read the Bible and we can talk about how Jesus did it. Because when we learn how Jesus did it, that can help us do it better. That was great timing. So let's pray. And um, and you don't have to bow your heads yet. That was nice, though. When we pray, I just want you guys to think about think about tomorrow. Monday. Ugh. Nobody likes Monday. School. Ugh. Monday workday. Meetings. Gross. But everywhere you go tomorrow, there will be people everywhere. And you don't know what they've been through. You don't know their story. You don't know their abuse. You don't know their divorce. You don't know their divorced parents. You don't know the last time they really felt loved and how hard that can be to live that way. Think about them. You don't have to be a super weirdo. Shake their hand. Say, hey, how are you? Invite them over for dinner. That's what Jesus would do. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, your scripture. We thank you so much for not holding out on us, not holding back from us. Thank you for teaching us everything that we need to know. Thank you for making us friends of God. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to love people the way that you loved people. Thank you for putting us in uncomfortable situations where we are forced to make a decision to follow you or not. I pray that this week our hearts are just a little bit more sensitive to the people in our life. And that our mission is to go and, and, and get people help, serve, love, give hope and do it without looking at the lines. The lines keep us from doing what you want us to do. I pray that we can go beyond those lines, we can cross over those lines, while other people watch and hate us for it, and think we're weird and don't understand while we're talking to that guy, because that guy is loved by you, and we know that, and that's our job. And we love you, and it should not be pray. Well, thanks for listening. We'd also like to invite you to join us for any of our Sunday gatherings as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 915 and 11 a.m.